Hello, and welcome to Caught in the Krause Fire, a podcast hosted by me, Krause, recent Master of Forestry graduate in Michigan's gorgeous and currently snow-filled Upper Peninsula. This podcast is focused on natural resources and other environmental topics around Michigan, the U.S., and even the world. I often bring in guest speakers to talk about these topics, most of which are from Michigan Technological University's College of Forest Resources and Environmental Science, otherwise known as CFRES. Each episode, myself and a guest talk about a range of different topics from climate change, jobs in the natural resource field, lessons learned in classes and on the job, research topics. And today, Mike and I are going to be recording episode two of this season as part of the professionalism and forestry class that he's taking with my past advisor, Michigan SAF board member and forest health professor, Dr. Tara Ball, who has been on a past episode about maple syrup and sugar bush stuff. Caught in the Crossfire's first season started with some of the Master of Forestry students in my own cohort and has been going strong each year since I began my Master of Forestry. Recording this podcast helps the current Master of Forestry students achieve the communication portion of what they need to be accredited by the Society of American Foresters. Mike is here today to talk about some of the natural history and forestry in Michigan. He will be attending fall camp this coming fall and be finishing his MF in December of this year. He has a major in public policy from Wayne State University with a minor in economics and he's from the small town of Linwood, Michigan, located on the Saginaw Bay, not too far from the town of farm fields that I grew up in. Mike has spent summers in the Huron National Forest and as Grandma's Cabin in Oscoda, Michigan, near the Lumberman's Monument. And being from such a forested area has certainly had an impact on the path that he's chosen, leading to where he is in his MF right now. So Mike, thanks for being on the show. Yeah, thank you. I think that you and I are going to have a lot of stuff to talk about, especially because we are from a similar area. I'm from Freeland. So we both grew up near the Saginaw Bay. And I think both of us, it seems like from what I know about you so far, have spent a lot of our youth outdoors. When you sent me your like little blurb for the show the other day, you just, you put so much detail in it and like giving me all this detail about lumber history in the U.S. And you even dropped off some books to me beforehand that I went through. And I think you're going to have a lot to teach me today. But first I wanted to just have you tell us a little bit more about yourself, uh, maybe your background in natural resources, what kind of things that you did that kind of led you to Michigan Tech and getting your Master of Forestry? Sure. So like you said, my name is Mike Verdun. I'm 29 years old. I guess when I first became interested in pursuing natural resources in a sort of professional way and academic way was when I was at Wayne State University. In my junior year, I was able to participate in a Michigan State Extension program called the Michigan Conservation Stewards. Essentially, it's a program for people that want to be leaders and stewardship in their communities. They offer sort of like a lecture series at different parks and preserves in a certain county and where you live. This one was in Washtenaw County, the Ann Arbor area. And so at those lectures, Usually we had a guest speaker that was a natural resource professional, like a forester or a biologist or someone from the city parks department. And we'd also have an ecology lesson. And then we would walk around a property and talk about the ecology and sort of the projects that have been done there or future projects that the community wants to do in some of these parks and preserves. And so meeting a forester for the first time, I was kind of I was really interested that 
there's jobs out there for people to manage all these green spaces and parks and there's a growing sort of trend in cities for people that want um, sort of nature that isn't an hour, two hours away. They wanna be able to go to a park that seems more like nature and less like park benches and swings. And so <clears throat> that's when I realized I wanted to go into public service in natural resources in that way. And so when I was at Wayne State, I realized after looking at jobs and natural resources that I sort of had to augment my scientific background and so that's where I started looking at different programs where I could do that and in Michigan there's a few choices you have you know Michigan State University of Michigan and Michigan Tech and Michigan Tech actually had the, the master of forestry program that I found and I was pretty delighted to find out that they accepted any major and it well, you didn't have to have a really hard science background in biology or chemistry and that really motivated me to look into it more and after I went, after I completed my degree at Wayne State, I went back to the community college that I had gone to previously, Delta College, and I had taken intro to biology, uh, university chem, um, and some ecology courses, anything really I could, anything that they offered that I could afford. I did that in preparation to apply for the master's of forestry program, and that really sparked my interest academically. But personally, uh, you sort of mentioned my childhood a little bit. My grandma, she had a cabin in the National Forest, the Huron National Forest. And I was lucky enough to spend almost every weekend in the summertime going up there. We, we had a boat, we would go fishing, we would hike around. I would ride my bikes up and down the hills. <laughs> and so I, I became pretty acquainted with nature early on and being you know, out in nature by myself. And I found a lot of joy and relaxation in that. And that area has a sort of a rich history of logging. There's actually Lumberman's Monument, which I talk about, is sort of a national forest interpretive site where they have this huge bronze statue. It's of three men. They're about nine feet tall. And each man is wearing a different sort of uniform or clothing, and they represent the different professions of the logging industry in the early, in the turn of the century. So I think there was sort of like a river operator that had the pike and pushed the, the logs down the river. Yeah. And then there was sort of a, a lumberjack with a saw. And then there's a navigator or sort of like a, someone that does the, the plotting and he has a compass. And so I spent a lot of time, you know, just hanging out and looking at that. And they have these interpretive sites about logging culture and what a logging camp was like and so at an early age I was really interested in that sort of thing when I got to when I got older and got interested in history and reading a lot more I was able to read about the history of Michigan and the logging history and sort of the history in, in the area I grew up Bay City is uh has a history of of logging too that is where logs from the northern lower peninsula sort of came for sale they shipped them down um, via rail to Bay City and then, or down the Saginaw River, and then they would end up in Bay City, which is uh, the port city. And so I was sort of interested in that uh, history as well. And learning about history sort of helps me understand how society works, I guess, and why things are the way they are. And I think forestry really benefits 
well, you know, you really have to understand history for forestry because a lot of all of the forest management is based on, especially in Michigan, is based on taking care of, you know, maybe past mistakes or exploitations or things that were maybe necessary or people thought were sustainable, but really weren't. And so now we're sort of trying to put the pieces back together and you, you kind of have to know what happened before to fix the problem. So I think forest history and conservation history is really important especially to, you know, a new forester and someone that's just learning. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, most of Michigan's forests were completely logged during those times when the lumber industry was booming. And we talk about that a lot in in some of our classes, especially like forest ecology. That's definitely, I, I do really like appreciate that you like to know the like why, you know, and, and yeah a lot of people, their mind goes to like the science aspect of things, but it's really cool to have you here and have that history aspect for sure. Yeah. And I really like, I really like history because it's almost like, it's almost like putting together a puzzle. You know, when you're first learning, you learn sort of Western culture, the basics of modern history, uh, the world wars, the revolutions, that sort of stuff. And that's sort of like, when you're trying to put together a puzzle, you have to look at the cover and see what the puzzle is supposed to look like. Once you sort of understand the fundamentals, you can dig deeper into the stories and the people. And that's almost like looking at the puzzle pieces and how they fit together. And so I think it's really interesting that you can sort of understand the big picture and then start taking it apart and dissecting it. And that's where I think you'd get a really deep understanding of why things are the way they are, especially in Michigan, you know, why the government is the way it is and why the natural resources, the state of natural resources, maybe why the history of the of industry and what led to all the projects that are going on now. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about like the books that you had left in my mailbox for me. Yeah. This one, The Great Water, a documentary history of Michigan uh, by Matthew Thick. You had marked a few pages for me. The uh, the logging section and sort of the mining section, uh, I thought those were, would be really pertinent to our conversations. And I think some of the stories in there are really interesting and it's a really good insight on history because it's you're not reading someone's interpretation, you're actually reading documents from history, which is pretty revealing. Some of them are very revealing. I'm excited to hear about how like the lumber industry and the like mining industry tie together. And one of the first like pages that you marked was about like the white pine era and the lumber industry in Michigan after the civil war. And there was this like diary of a timber scout, which was literally people writing in their diaries and like writing at the end of their long day when they finally take their boots off and are, you know, camped for the night. Yeah. Yeah. I think the guy in that diary, he was on a, a sort of survey crew and they were doing the GLO surveying of Michigan. So they were going through the woods, counting chains, making uh, landmarks, you know, and it's <laughs> all the stuff that you read from the GLO notes. That's sort of like a, a similar thing. That's the sort of the personal side of the things that they had to go through. Yeah. Sort of the con- I was amazed at the conditions that he talks about. It's really funny. The he talks about how much he hates hardtack, which hardtack is like a, 
is a sort of biscuit, I guess. And mm-hmm. basically it's something that doesn't spoil or go rotten. You can put it in a bag or in a, wrap it up and put it in your pocket mm-hmm. and break off a piece and you can sort of survive for, in the wilderness with, you know, it's a bread that doesn't get moldy. Yeah. Yeah. He just talks about how much he can't wait to not eat hardtack for breakfast. <laughs> So yeah, one of my, one of my, the most interesting, I would say parts of one of the classes that you'll take at fall camp is the LMGPS course that Mike teaches. And one of the, the first thing that we learn is about how they did the public land survey. And then we go out and do essentially like try to redo what they did and see how accurate we are. And yeah, like learning the history about that and learning how literally people just walked through the woods, yeah, <laughs> all of Michigan to survey it. And like those records are detailed, like they are, it is like crazy stuff. And they were so accurate with everything. I mean, there, there's definitely some places where it's not as accurate, but for the most part, like they did a really good job at doing right. Thinking about the the timeline in Michigan history, that that GLO surveying was really important because early on in Michigan statehood, they were trying to build up their population, and before this, before there was any sort of surveying, people didn't really know what the north north of sort of Detroit looked like. They assumed it was all uninhabited wilderness. There's sort of like a controversy before that, before the, the, the federal surveying, there was sort of some state surveying that went on and it was, it was like a fraudulent survey and basically said it was rich farm fields and timber and, but they forgot to mention all the swamps and the, the black spruce swamps and miles of trudging through mud that you could never plant anything in. So early uh, settlers in Michigan were sort of sold a bill of goods that wasn't really uh true Mm -hmm. but eventually the GLO sort of sorted that out they surveyed all the timber up there and they realized wow there's quite a bit of industry available timber wise Mm -hmm. you know um they had sort of extirpated the beaver before the timber industry and so after the beaver were gone they moved to timber yeah 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 I feel like I learned about when they were first trying to like sell the land to people like these folks that had never even been to Michigan yet and they were coming and expecting land that they're going to be able to grow any crop on and and everything okay so let's go over kind of like the timeline of events from when European settlers kind of started coming into Michigan and and utilizing natural resources and like what they were using those natural resources for. I think the connection between sort of the the logging industry and the mining industry is sort of the, um, Michigan has a history of industries exploiting uh, sort of the workers and the resources. And the, the, the sections that I showed, that I marked for you in the Great Waters, the one about the mining um, is what I thought was pretty, pertinent and demonstrated how sort of there was this two classes of people in Michigan and sort of the history of Michigan. There's there's the the wealthy business owners that had the money and the resources and the power to exploit the resources. 
And then there's the sort of the working class, uh, the people that were doing the work and sort of maybe not reaping all the benefits from extracting the resources. Their cultures were changed by these, this, these industries. And so was the ecology of Michigan. And so I guess the timeline of events for Michigan history, I think a good one is Michigan became a state in 1826. I think the first European settlement in Michigan was uh, Sault Ste. Marie area. And that was in the 1600s, early 1600 by Father Pierre Marquette. Mm -hmm. And so there's a period of sort of 1600s up into the American Revolution that was sort of dominated by British and uh, French rule in Michigan. Mm -hmm. During the British and French rule, the main resource that was exploited was beaver pelts. Okay. Um, there was a huge market for beaver pelts in Europe um, and sort of the, the colonies of the Americas mm -hmm. and Michigan. The accounts of beaver in Michigan were pretty incredible. There was beavers in every lake and pond. And so this period, uh, this, this first period, I guess, of exploitation of resources, they trapped all, almost all of the beaver and uh, sort of the other uh, pelt animals as well after the beaver. That's sort of interesting because they had, uh, the people of Michigan, the businessmen, they had to find a new industry. And uh, Michigan sort of has a, a history of sort of exploiting an industry and then jumping to the next one. And that's the way we've sort of survived. We've had uh, the beaver pelts and then logging. Michigan was almost logged entirely especially the white pine, but also for uh, oak, for shipbuilding and um, barrels and casks. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's sort of um, the hallmark of Michigan environmental history is sort of, yeah, there's these, these, um, these businesses that are allowed to ex exploit. And then afterwards, there's this sort of uh, scar on society and on the land. There's a lot of industries now that are were created in response to that you know environmental protection uh forestry sort of more on the economic side more like the trust trust busting and uh dissolving of monopolies after the the logging industry we sort of had another another industry the automobile industry that has sort of sort of the tale of two histories i guess um with henry ford in particular you know, he was a philanthropist. He was an industrialist. He brought tons of work to Michigan. He made Detroit the number one industry city in America, but also brought these societal changes that maybe weren't in, with the best intentions. So yeah, Henry Ford, I found out, was a pretty interesting polarizing figure. When you, when you grow up, you think Henry Ford and Ford, uh, Ford cars, Ford trucks, Henry Ford, he, Ford hospital mm -hmm. must be a good guy. But when you dig deeper into the history, you find out that with all the good, there's bad. And so I think that's uh, the lessons we learn sort of from history is that with progress, you have to sort of mitigate the ethical and uh, the issues that arise that weren't intended. Yeah. Yeah don't know Henry Ford, but I, I feel like his intention was not to create cars that put CO2 into the atmosphere. You know, he, he wasn't sure. that. I don't think that was his ultimate plan at all, but 
yeah, it's really cool. I like that Henry Ford is such a big part of our history in the UP, yeah. but it, especially with CFRES, because we, the Ford Center was donated by Henry Ford. I mean, we still like have ties to that. We still have the sawmill for now on the property and until, you know, before the pandemic, we were doing tours and everything there in the mill. And yeah, it, it's crazy. But also, it, I mean, a huge part of our college's history, for sure. Like, you know, if we didn't have the Ford Center, then we wouldn't be one of the top five forestry schools in the United States. Do you want to tell me what you know about the history of the Ford Center? And then I'll kind of tell you, I did a little bit of research before this fill in um, you don't cover yeah so uh alberta uh, is where the ford center is i know that i know that the up and the mining industry has sort of a history of building towns where the mines are and a lot of these towns were sort of owned by the company company towns and they were sort of uh planned a lot of the houses you see up here some of the smaller towns were old mine towns you see the, the houses all in a row so there's a lot, there's a history of all these planned uh, towns and Henry Ford, Henry Ford was a bit of an idealist, a sort of a utopian, I guess, mm -hmm. but he was also a realist because he knew when to spend money and when not to. <laughs> um, and so the Ford Center, after Henry Ford uh, came up with the, uh, the assembly line and perfected the uh, the manufacturing process he needed materials he needed lumber he needed metal he decided instead of contracting and sort of trying to source all this material he would just start companies and go get it himself and so I think that's sort of where the Ford Center fits in is he wanted to log the area and he built a sawmill and started building a town and then um, I believe they, uh, some sort of market shift happened and they decided not to finish the town, but they wanted it to be sort of a, have a church and a general store and more of a community and less of a company town. So he had a, he wanted to re-envision the sort of mining company town in the Henry Ford vision. Yeah. Just to fill in like the missing pieces, I guess. Yeah. Alberta Village was built and founded in 1936 and then yeah basically he just I mean he put it in like a central there were four um, mills that he built up in the UP there was one in like Iron Mountain they he put them in a centralized location so that the shipping basically radius so that they didn't have to haul the logs super far I guess the shortest distance possible the town so I guess it was like the sawmill and then originally 12 houses for employees. And then they built the dam, which created the Plumbago Lake across the street. And they used that water for sawmill boilers to keep everything cool. Now we have beavers there, luckily still, who yeah, keep it dammed. <laughs> and we still have the lake there. I guess it housed around like 50 workers with their families. And yeah, I guess like the term that I would use is he his vision was to create like a self-sustaining community where right. you know they would have everything that they needed right there and yeah and then I found out too that the 
the sawmill had the capacity to produce 14,000 board feet per day of hardwood and then another like a little over 20,000 board feet per day of softer softwood. Basically in the 40s when a lot of the timber was already removed from from the UP and the industry kind of started to die down a little bit, he closed two of the other mills up here. And then I think that kind of is one reason why Alberta Village lasted a little bit longer than the other places. And, and then it closed in 1954, and that's when he donated it to Michigan Tech. And he originally donated it to the College of, we had back then, it was called like the College of Mining and Engineering, but then also the forestry program had already been started. And so both of those colleges utilized the area for research, but now it's pretty much just CFRES. Like the, rather than the land being in Michigan Tech's name as a whole, it's, it's in our control as the College of Forest Resources and Environmental Science. So that's pretty cool. They are that sawmill that's up front in the front of the village that's right by the road that I use as like a landmark when I'm giving prospective tours to students and telling them about it. But I guess they are, there's talk right now about that going away because it's just like too much upkeep and costs us a lot of money and we aren't able to really utilize it for anything. So we're kind of looking for Ideally, I would like if somebody bought it and used it for something cool, um, but otherwise I think we might be essentially like shipping the whole building down to Greenfield Village. Oh yeah, the Henry Ford Museum, that's cool. Do you know anything about history before European settlers came? Do you know anything about indigenous peoples in the area? Not a whole lot. I know a little. I know that before European settlement, um, the lower, the upper lower peninsula was not very inhabited even by Native Americans, but the upper peninsula was, and the lower, lower peninsula was, a lot of the territories, there was sort of feuds about which nations had uh, control, and, you know, i I do believe that the uh, the original tribes that were in Michigan uh, were pushed out. I don't know a lot of the specific tribe names and things like that, but I do know that where I'm from, uh, the Saginaw Bay area, the was originally inhabited by the Sauk Indians, I believe. They were pushed out by the Chippewa uh, Ojibwe Indians. And so that is really the extent of what I know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I wish I knew more too. I wish that I could yeah. fill in listeners with like a little bit more information. It's definitely something that I want to learn more about and take classes on, especially with like my work in DEI type stuff. It's super easy to talk about how Europeans did everything. Like all that history is in the books, but native culture is all by word of mouth. And now, I mean, there's, there's just not a lot of things like published about it. It's, it's pretty hard to, to get to. It's kind of that, that topic for me as a forester and someone who's working in DEI and like passionate about knowing that stuff is definitely, I, I want to like 
go to the communities themselves and kind of hear from from folks there what stories they were told and and that kind of stuff i know at least for the uh the chippewa ojibwe tribe from where we're from you know the mount pleasant area the isabella reservation they they have people i uh, when i was at delta college they asked they actually had someone from the tribe come to our class and sort of give a presentation on sort of uh, origin stories the origin of native man and really fascinating uh ways they look at uh sort of creation how they were able to live within nature and not sort of strip nature away yeah they so, weren't exploiting it at all yeah uh but inter- uh, i didn't know this but uh last semester in uh you know dendrology and forest ecology i learned that native americans were were managing the forests and that's pr- i never really thought about like Whenever you think about Native Americans when you're younger, you think they just live in the woods and they shoot rabbits and hunt fish. And But no, they had to cut down trees and they had to uh, make sure they had the right resources and they figured out ways to manipulate the land in order to make it easier for them to mm-hmm. get those resources. And I didn't, I didn't really think about that until now. Yeah. So that's pretty interesting. Yeah. It's sort, of, sort of interesting because if there was people you know doing stuff to the landscape that's that's history too so i think there's that sort of there should be uh, more documentation i guess of pre pre european settlement in michigan i think yeah that would be interesting to learn about too yeah, yeah. Uh, something that's always been like a really interesting topic to me that i've wanted to learn more about and just like haven't necessarily gotten the chance yet is how indigenous people used fire to manage the landscape like they did prescribe burns themselves and they I mean they had it down to a science that fit their needs and also didn't strip the landscape like they were they found ways to benefit and it's just so crazy how like connected with the land and natural resources they were and like how appreciative I don't even think is the word that it would describe you know like they're they valued our natural resources so much more than I think a lot of yeah most people do today yeah they valued it and they they sort of knew the secrets that you know none of it was written down but they knew the benefits of certain plants and um, animals and maybe you can't eat this certain organ of an animal, but if you use it for medicine, it's really valuable. And sort of that is, that is one thing that sort of science today is sort of chasing, I think a little bit, trying to recreate it in the lab. But all that stuff, people knew about that stuff and they were utilizing it. And that sort of the reliance on modern technology has sort of made it so that we we forgot that information. Mm-hmm. There's a, a family that I'm really good friends with who have their own like sap farm. I mean, it, it's not just maple. They have their own sugar bush. And um, I mean, they may make sugar and syrup and maple like vinegar from sap. And like every single time that I, I, I've gone there each spring since I've been up here to help with tapping trees and stuff. And I learn 
so much from them and I learn not just about like what's happening with the sap and everything but about the culture that they still are so involved in and like care about so much and I I love going out to their farm yeah that's that's one of my favorite things about sort of nature and um talking to people about why they they love an area so much and why why they connect to it and sort of the personal reasons I really think that's really fascinating you know growing up and going to the national forest um <laughs> it's pretty hard not to find someone when you're talking to them and they just volunteer they tell you why they love it so much and I really I became really fascinated about that and it really excites me to like go to new places and talk to people about oh why do you like this beach so much why do you why do you go to this boat launch like I really think the personal connection with at least the access to nature the access points are is really interesting Mm -hmm. so I guess to go off of that you should like tell me about one of your favorite memories like is there like one that stands out about being in the national forest or out at your grandma's place on the weekends maybe not memories but uh to me it's sort of like a place of uh rituals things I get to do Mm -hmm. a lot and I really I really enjoy that and I find a lot of sort of satisfaction and relaxation of sort of being able to go up to the cabin and turn off the phone and you're in the woods and you get to you get to do whatever you want Mm -hmm. you can go for a hike you can you can go fishing you can go sit at the beach and so I really uh I really appreciate that being able to do that because not everyone gets unlimited opportunities to do that you know some people only get to go camping once a summer or once in their whole life even I think the the biggest benefit or my the thing I cherish the most is sort of the repeated exposure and uh, just being comfortable uh, being comfortable walking in the woods being comfortable launching a boat and going out fishing by yourself I think that really helps um, sort of build your character and your confidence a little bit yeah and I really just enjoyed doing that with my family, you know? Yeah. And uh, it's a place where I get to go and remember my family and um, think about them a lot. And uh, I I just really, I really have a good time. And I really, it's a really big part of, you know, who I am. Yeah. 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 I similarly, um, my grandparents had a cottage up by Rose City and it was on a a little lake up there, and yeah, I mean, same thing, my cousins and I, so my cousin and I um, would go up on the same weekends with my grandma and grandpa, and then our second cousins, and my, like, great aunt and great uncle have a cottage just down the road from my grandparents, and that's actually, like, where my parents met, yeah, the, just, like, the memories that I have of being in the woods with my cousins, like, the four of us kids running around, and then, like, when my cousins got a go-kart and we would just ride around in the woods and we would build forts with like just random stuff that we found laying around and we'd like play tricks on my younger cousin by like putting seaweed from the lake and like a path and we'd tell him that it was like the seaweed monster coming out of the woods yeah just like so many special memories and yeah like you said like learning to launch a boat I probably 
I didn't even realize it until just now, but like I probably learned to do that from my grandparents because they had a pontoon yeah. and eventually they taught my cousin and I how to drive the boat. And then eventually they let us go take the boat out by ourselves and we'd go fishing and skinny dipping and whatever, you know. And then in the winter when the lake was froze, we'd go snowmobiling and go on the trails that up there that the DNR keeps and maintains and yeah that was like pretty much you know a couple times a year at least we would go up there and do that stuff and yeah yeah it's a good place to grow up as a kid it's definitely my favorite thing about sort of Michigan culture is the cottage life the cottage lifestyle going up north during the summertime that's Mm -hmm. the best you know (laughs) yeah kind of how I want to live my life yes this summer I'm going to be living in a camper so that's pretty exciting um I'm going to be living on a farm most of it's forested and uh I haven't been to the farm yet but I saw kind of like a diagram like a I mean I've looked on like google earth and stuff but then the guy who owns the farm drew this like diagram for me and he was like where do you want to park your camper and I literally pointed to this spot where I knew I could still hook into electricity, but it overlooks the pond on the property. Cause I want to just be able to get up before work and like literally open my trailer door and just like see nature. And I'm yeah. so stoked for this yeah. summer. I cannot wait to move out there. Yeah. We're going to do some, some tree tapping stuff out there. Eventually it's kind of, it's going to be like a, kind of like a learning farm. And just the the guys that own it are going to offer classes, like just random, you know, stuff that people don't typically get exposed to. Like they'll probably do some like butchering classes. The one guy has done tons of metalwork type stuff in his life. And then my friend and I do a little bit of like, I would say beginner to very intro intermediate woodworking. We'll do the, the tapping of trees type stuff and then grow basically our own food and and whatnot I'm super excited to just like have that this summer and just be able to live off of essentially the land and out of a camper and I'll be plugged into electricity to like charge my phone and stuff but otherwise yeah wow that should be really fun you're gonna have a garden you said Mm -hmm. that's cool some chickens probably some goats Cool. So I guess like one of the things that you talked about a lot in the um, sheet that you filled out were these was this book, The Silva of North America. I definitely like I read a lot about it because of what you had told me, but I want to make sure that the listeners kind of hear about that. Yeah. Yeah, So the North American Silva, I guess I I guess I should back up a little bit. So in for the Masters of Forestry program, in the first semester, you take Woody Plants, which is a dendrology class and uh, forest ecology, and you come, you become very acquainted with the uh, the Forest Service Silviculture Manual, and it has all the life history of trees in North America and very very detailed information, and it. it's essentially the backbone of all forestry research, and so. Being interested in history, I guess, I sort of was curious about how do they come up with all this stuff about trees and who, how did they, how did they gather all that information and 
how many times have they had to sort of revise it? And so I quickly learned out they're they're still learning new stuff about tree genetics and that sort of thing. But um, I guess I uh, I did a lot of Google searching at first, and I sort of stumbled across Andre Michaud, the book that I gave you. And the the uh, the book is uh, the prints, the the lithograph prints that are found in the North American Silva. And what what that document is 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 essentially the first complete scientific sort of document that describes the trees of North America. It had a it was accompanied by those prints that uh, I I let you I bar I lended you in that book, mm-hmm. and so. In that book, they have a couple essays right in the beginning about sort of the history of uh, the Michaud family and the history of the, the North American Silva. And it turns out it's, it's really interesting, uh, these guys, sort of how the, their, their story. And so I, I really became interested in the, the story around the North American Silva. It really starts with this one guy, uh, Andre Michaud. And he was a botanist from France, and he was actually a royal botanist. He grew up in in the shadows of sort of the palace in Versailles. His father was a royal gardener. And so because he was connected to the sort of royal class, he was able to get an education. He was educated in liberal arts, and eventually he became interested in biology. It's important to mention in sort of the the 1700s leading up to, uh, that's the Enlightenment era. And so there was a really big emphasis on science and the scientific method. And it's essentially the century where uh, the science of biology was created. And they started really forming inquiries on how the world worked. And they were figuring out systematically the scientific method essentially was what came out of it. And then eventually uh, they built up to sort of Darwinism and the origin of species. Um, and sort of Misho, I think, falls in between those two. Mm-hmm. He didn't really understand. They didn't really have the information on um, evolution yet, you know, because Darwin, they didn't publish the origin of species until 1849. 50 years earlier, Misho, he was a uh, so he's a botanist for the for the for the French king, and the French king sort of gave him a commission to go to the New World and um, study trees. Michaud was an expert in in European oak species, and he uh, he had heard that the New World has forests of oak species that could be really valuable. He had this royal uh, commission to go to North America and study the trees of America and sort of his initial mission was to report back to the French king and let him know if there was any timber species that would be valuable to the kingdom and if they could be transported to Europe and uh, grown in plantations there. André decided to bring his son along with him, uh, Francois. They essentially became a research duo and they explored Eastern United States and started researching trees and creating scientific documents about North American tree species. Andre Michaud, he published, he published a book on North American oak species, and he was sort of the, uh, the leading expert in that. His work on oaks 
was sort of the the prototype for the North American Silva that was published by his son, Francois. And um, later on, Francois admits that his father's work is uh, worthy of him, of his father actually being an author to uh, the North American Silva. And he sort of claimed it at the beginning as his own because his father died and uh, they published it after. But he eventually came out and said, yeah, my, my, me and my father both worked on this together. Michaud had another interesting, he had an interesting life. He, he had two plantations, one failed in New Jersey, and then he moved to South Carolina and he started another plantation. And so that, that South Carolina plantation was sort of his home base for his explorations of America. And he documented a lot of Appalachian tree species. Mm-hmm. He was almost as famous as Lewis and Clark but not quite. <laughs> he sort of messed it up. Um, he, uh, he had a, a commission from Thomas Jefferson to explore west of the Mississippi and uh, do a scientific exploration there. Um, but on his way, he stopped in the newly purchased Louisiana Territory. Being a Frenchman, he met with sort of the French diplomats of the area. Mm-hmm. And he thought he would try his hand at a little American politics and sort of ended up upsetting Thomas Jefferson and the founders. And because he was sort of trying to help the French in a way that was not beneficial to the American interests in, the, in their new territory, he basically had to, he didn't, Thomas Jefferson, he reluctantly had to strip away this commission that you know would have been the Lewis and Clark expedition 10 years before Thomas Jefferson he still had that idea of wanting to commission an exploration and eventually found Lewis and Clark which everyone knows the yeah. story of Lewis and Clark and I think that's pretty interesting that it was almost Andre Michaud instead of uh, Lewis and Clark and so it would have been interesting to have a Forrester discover you know the west but <laughs> yeah. didn't work out that way he did, they did go on to publish, you know, the, the North American Silva, and that became sort of the, the cornerstone of academic forestry for probably the next 50 to 100 years. Another guy I, I mentioned, a British botanist uh, named Thomas Nuttall, he took it upon himself to sort of augment Michaud's work by studying uh, the trees west of the Mississippi that they didn't have a chance to uh, document. And his vision was to sort of create a total complete work uh, and so he ended up matching the amount of tree species that Michaud did in his expeditions and the initial research for this text it started in 1802 18, 1800 and they didn't publish the final version until 1849 and I thought that was really uh, fascinating how long it, t- it took them to sort of explore America and compile all this information all the while, you know, the country is growing rapidly and, you know, right after the revolution and sort of sparked the the later revolutions in Europe, French revolution. It's just interesting. You get to research a little snippet of history, a little story, and you get, you just have that little deeper understanding. So I really, I get a lot of satisfaction out of that. Yeah. Yeah. That's so great. That's a long time. Yeah, 50 years. Yeah, almost 50 years. Like, do you know if he had, like, 
there had to be other people with him, right? Oh, yeah. I don't know all the names, but he did have other uh, people in his expedition. You know, he had sort of like a geologist. He had people that specialized in different areas that, uh, similar to a lot of the smaller expeditions throughout history, sort of naturalists, they they went in exploration teams. So there would be sort of a geologist, a biologist, someone mm-hmm. that collected samples of plants. Yeah. But yeah, it was in, it's sort of interesting to see how the science has changed from sort of observation to sort of scientific experimentation that we have now. Yeah. And how short of a time that was from going that, you know, 1850, that's not a long, long time ago in the scope of things. So it's, it's interesting to see how different scientific sort of uh, techniques can be, but they still can uh, be really powerful in the, in the final result. Yeah. Yeah. I was just imagining like how much communication was different back then and how like today, if this were to happen, if someone were to say, okay, we need to go look at all the tree species on the west side of the Mississippi, an email could get sent out and you could have yeah. the answers in hours, yeah, we have you know? Best. Yeah, it's, it's almost like we, I wouldn't say we take it for granted just because it's such an important resource. And I think we all know that, but it sort of how it came to be, I think a lot of people don't really realize how many years of work it took to get the, the foundation yeah. of silviculture. Yeah. So you're graduating in December after fall camp. Are you stoked yeah. for fall camp? Yeah, I'm really excited. I'm really excited to sort of spend the summer uh, working and getting my my feet wet, I guess, in natural resources. I don't have a lot of employment experience, I guess, in natural resources. I've done a lot of other things for work, but yeah, I'm really excited that I now have the credentials to get out there. Yeah. Do you have a job lined up for the summer? I don't, but I'm sort of searching the Grand Rapids area, and I'm really interested in uh, urban forestry and uh, possibly working for maybe a conservation nonprofit or uh, something like that. Yeah. Why Grand Rapids area? You mean Grand Rapids, Michigan? I'm assuming? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so my my girlfriend, my longtime girlfriend, Megan, uh, she lives there. That's where I want to start my life. Yeah. So I, I think it helps me to have a focused target on where I want to go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm like not that way at all. I have no idea what I want to do. I want to work for the Forest Service, but that's yeah. like everywhere. So who yeah. knows where I'll end up eventually. But roommate that just graduated in December, she did her bachelor's of forestry up here at Tech and she starts a new job at Bartlett. So she just got hired there and starts in a few weeks. And I was looking into their company and they sound pretty cool. They're very scientific based. Yeah, yeah, really research-based, tree care, tree health, arborist type work. Yeah. A lot of tree climbers too. I saw a lot of ads for they want tree climbers. So you're into climbing trees that might be a place to go they probably pay pretty good for climbing way up there (laughs) yeah Yeah, they have like a whole like research center I want to say it's in one of the Carolinas urban forestry is definitely not something that we touch base on a lot 
in our forestry programs just because we aren't urban up here. <laughs> but it was like super relieving to know that my best friend, she's always wanted to go into urban forestry because she grew up in the Grand Rapids area and her dad has done urban forestry her whole life and beyond that. So it was really exciting to know that like, even without the focus on urban forestry in CFRES at this moment in time, that employers are still looking for people to hire like, like us. Yeah, I guess I'll, I'll shout out to RJ Laverne. I'm in his urban forestry class and he, he's at CFRES, you know, and he is, uh, he works at Davy Tree. I think he does a good job representing urban forestry for Michigan Tech. His class has been really enlightening so far, and it really matches up with sort of my previous academic interests. Yeah. So yeah, I really enjoyed thinking about and sort of working on urban policy problems and urban environmental problems. Yeah. So yeah, urban forestry, I think, is sort of the perfect tool for me to be able to tackle those problems. That's awesome. Thank you for being on the show and telling mm -hmm. me so much about all of this and for letting me borrow these books. Thanks yeah, no problem. Well, thank you so much, Michael. Thanks. And thanks for, to all the listeners for getting caught in the crossfire. <laughs>